2: Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend, Verisage Institute colleague and co-host, Ed Kless. And Ed, we are so honored today. We have the great behavioral economist, Dan Ariely. With us today.
3: Very excited. And for those of you out there, this is the first time that Ron and I are actually doing the show from the same location. We are here in the beautiful studios of the Soul of Enterprise in Allen, Texas today.
2: <laughs> Great to be here. It's so fun doing this together. But uh, what are the forces that influence our behavior? Well, folks, today we have Dan Ariely, the James B. Duke Professor of Psychology and Behavioral Economics at Duke University, and he's dedicated to answering a lot of these questions and help people live more sensible, if not rational, lives. His interests span a wide range of behaviors, and his sometimes unusual experiments are consistently interesting, amusing, and informative, demonstrating profound ideas that fly in the face of common wisdom. Uh, Dan is also a founding member of the Center for Advanced High Sight and the author of three New York Times bestselling books, which we'll probably spend most of our time today talking to him about. But, Dan, welcome to The Soul of Enterprise. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, you know, I think uh, we met at, when you gave a talk at the University of Reno uh, at the University of Reno, and you were on your way to Burning Man. And I think you made a comment that you go to Burning Man every year with your son. Is that true? Um, I don't go with my
4: son every year, but I try to go every year. I had to miss last year, sadly, but uh, I, I try to do it. And of course, it's all for research purposes.
2: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Hey, Dan, how big is it, just out of curiosity, because I know it's grown over the years. How many people do attend that?
4: Uh, between fifty and 60,000 people a year, and it is, wow. it's incredible because it, the, it, the mass of people is so high, and the things that people do and create is so incredible that um, there's really no way to, to see it all. And I, I think of it like the biggest museum in the world because it's, um, it's this incredible arc in the desert and people kind of live on that. And then there's art scattered all around the desert. And then, of course, people dressed in a very interesting way and people create camps. And it's just an amazing way to see human creativity and enterprise and activity. Uh, it fills me with, with, with hope um, every year I go.
2: And there's no money, is that right? Things are exchanged and it's more of a barter system?
4: That's well, it's so so first of all, there are two exceptions for the no money. You can buy coffee, right? You don't take people from time to time. <laughs> of course, them coffee, yes, everybody no, needs no their coffee. coffee. So so um coffee is a separate thing and they also have a place to buy ice. But but aside from that, it's a gift giving economy. So it's not a barter economy. In a barter economy, I give you something and you give me something. In a gift economy, you just give. So, for example, there are bars and you go and you drink. And the hope is that at some point you'll give something to somebody else. But you don't have to give back to the bar in any particular way. And it's actually a beautiful, it's a beautiful system if you can sustain it where people are just nice to other people and then other nice things happen to them. So every year when I go, the question is what am I going to do Give what's going to be my service to the community uh, this year, and and it's a, it's always an interesting process to think about what what would you like to give that other people would actually enjoy receiving and get some value out of this.
2: What what hap- what are some of the things that you have brought to give?
4: So so I I, I changed over the years. Um, I tried some physical things. So I brought one year I brought these ice packs that you give for athletes. It's like these uh, little. Uh, plastic bags that when you break them, they become very cold. So this was very appreciated in the desert.
2: Sure.
4: Uh, one year I made these physical riddles. This was like a, a piece of metal and a string, and you had to take the string out of the, the piece of metal. It was not, not easy to do, kind of intellectual. Uh, one year I made people uh, Turkish coffee. I'm, I'm originally from Israel, from the Middle East, so even though it's Turkish coffee, we, we take pride in our ability to make uh, coffee. And for the last few years, actually this started in the year that you and I met when I went with my son, uh, Amit and I, uh, we created an advice booth. So we had <laughs> a big sign that says free advice, and we gave people. he gave people advice, and I gave people advice. And that was actually quite wonderful, I have to say. Um, some people I gave advice to kept on writing me years afterwards. Um, and it was also interesting because we gave advice – in the desert in Burning Man uh, before I started having an advice column. So right now I have, for the last three years actually, I've had an advice column in one of the newspapers, kind of like a Dear Abby. Um, uh, but, but Amit and I started having an advice booth before before this.
2: Right. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, Dan, I guess we, we kind of want to go through your three books, and there's just so much here, and there's so many questions that both Ed and I have for you. But... I'm going to start out with a semantic question for you. This term, behavioral economics, I mean, I understand we use it, and it's kind of made its way into the current jargon. But let me ask you, if you go back to um, some earlier economists, especially from the Austrian school, like Ludwig von Mises or Friedrich Hayek, who I guess today's Uh his 116th birthday, if he was still with us, um, they talked about human action not behavior under the assumption that, you know, animals behave but humans act because we have a purpose in mind and some type of end objective and we learn. You, in your first book, you coined the term, you used the term behavioral economics and then you said, or judgment and decision making. And I actually preferred that. Do do you have any problems or qualms about the term behavioral economics?
4: Yeah, so... So listen, I I think the question of what exactly is behavioral economics, where does it end, where does it start, uh, when is it just an applied social science, uh, it's kind of a discussion that we we can have philosophically, but I don't really care so much. Here is what I do care about. Um, Economists, uh, so so let's start with economics. Economics is both both a descriptive study and a prescriptive study. So it's a study that basically says, here is how human behavior works. And that's the descriptive part, and it's a study that says, "And here is how we should design the world. Here is how we should design tax system, education system, and so on. And the descriptive part I have no qualms with. it's more accurate, less accurate, captures some of human behavior, captures less. That's fine, right? But what what bothers me is the prescriptive side, where if you listen to kind of traditional economists, they would say, "You want to design a healthcare system, just talk to us." We understand how to create a system. You want to design a tax system, educational system, just talk to us, we can uh, design everything. And that's the part that bothers me. So if you look at the economic advisors, if you look at how businesses listen to economists. So for me, the term behavioral economics needs to have economics in there because of, I think, the overemphasis we had on economics in the last, let's say, 40 years. So if we called it, let's say we just called it applied psychology, which I think descriptively would be fine, the problem is that people would not understand where it stands in contrast to. So for me, the, the term is actually about saying, you know, when you're applying economics, think, think twice and think about applying a model that is, uh, has more behavior into it. Um, now, the other thing is if you talk about ancient economics – ancient economics was not about um, perfect rationality, right? Adam Smith uh, wrote, wrote a book called The Moral Sentiment. The Moral Sentiment, an uh, incredibly important book, had nothing to do about invisible hand, had nothing to do about efficiency, uh, very much about human, human psychology. Uh, what happened to economics is, as it was becoming more mathematical, it made sense from a practical perspective, to assume rationality. And then sometimes people assume rationality with such high vigor that they forgot it was just an assumption, and they kind of said, oh, this is how people are actually behaving. Um, so so I, think, I think we do need to, to be very cautious when we apply economics, and that's why I want to use the term behavioral economics. But it's not because I think it's the only term that is accurate from the perspective of what it
2: really means. Excellent. Gotcha. That, that makes a lot of sense. Thanks for clarifying that for me. Um, let me ask you another question. If you look at some of the economists, and I know you had an on-running debate with Tim Hartford uh, from the UK, you know, the undercover economist, and he's more on the rationality side, and other economists like Steven Landsberg and you know maybe David Friedman, things like that. David Friedman says the reason that we assume rationality is because it, it it's not that it predicts human behavior perfectly. He said, but I can get there about, I can predict it correctly about 50% of the time. Oh. He said, which isn't bad. If I could do that well at the track, I'd be a rich man. I, I kind of think of it, Dan, as the assumption of rationality is useful, but if it only explains half, of our behavior, maybe your work is starting to shed light on the other half. What's your thought on that?
4: Yeah. So so a couple of things. First of all, I'm not sure that the 50% is correct. (laughs) Right. Uh, The second thing is we need to think about not just correct on average, but we need to think about what are the failing points. So think about texting and driving. Uh, How often do you need to text and drive to kill yourself? Right? You don't have to do it 50% of the time. It's enough that you do it 1% of the time and then you make a terrible mistake and you die. So right. so mistakes are very costly. And, And here's an example. Think about the idea that if we post calorie information on food, people will start eating better. So quite a few years ago, we did a study with a company called Panda Express and we posted calorie information on every item in their menu. And we observed what people did before and after, and what do you think happened?
2: <laughs> nothing they happened. They ate more right. when they saw the calories? They did eat more, but nothing happened. Nothing happened. Oh, okay. Um, so now New York
4: City then decided to force every fast food place in New York to post calorie information. And the theory is very nice. The theory says, hey, let's just put this out there and people would make better decisions. But New York too, when you look at the data, shows that almost nothing happened. And now we just regulated a new rule that forces every restaurant in the U.S. that has more than 20 restaurants, I think 20 or more, to post calorie information. It's expensive. It's difficult. And we have no evidence that it's influencing behavior. So, so here's an example of an assumption of how people make decisions. We assume people make rational, thoughtful decisions. And the only reason they don't make good decisions is they don't have the right information. So just give them the right information. So think about the amount of money that restaurants are going to have to investigate their menu, understand the calorie content on everything and every time change it when an ingredient changes. And think about how much better we could use that money and effort if we actually understood what, what works and how we could get people to actually eat better. So, so this idea of 50% of the time, um, A, I don't think it's really 50. B, I think that the times when we can make mistakes are, even if they're smaller than 50%, they could be incredibly damaging. C, we create lots of effort into all kinds of directions that are, just, that are just useless and just wasting time and effort. And we're actually preventing ourselves from doing things the right way. I'll give you another example, a very um, sad example. Um, in hospitals, physicians come to patients these days and say, I just diagnosed you with disease X and now you have a choice of what you want to do. And the patient said, but doctor, I don't know what to do. Please tell me what to do. And the doctor said, well, that's not my job. My job is just to tell you what the options are and the statistics and so on. And it's your job to decide what to do. People who are just told that they are sick are in no capacity to make any decision. But nevertheless, in a systemic way, we are forcing them to make these decisions. And it's just, just a shame because they're really unable to make, to make useful decisions. Um, so, so I think, I think this idea that it's good enough if it's fifty percent, it it's it's wrong. I don't think that's right.
2: Right, right, gotcha. Um, well, Dan, we have to take our first break, but when we come back, I want to ask you something about your first book as well, Predictably Irrational. That can a more expensive placebo actually? Provide <laughs> a bigger cure for like a migraine headache or something. And, uh, well, we'll folks, we'll, we'll talk, uh, with Dan when we return from this break. But in the meantime, we'd like to remind you that you can contact Ed or myself at TSOE at Verisage.com. And if you have a question for us or for Dan, our guest, you can, uh, tweet us at hashtag ask TSOE. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Leading Results.
0: Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN.
3: Is your website just a brochure or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are leading results.
1: The business community's first choice in internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network.
0: You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise.
2: Well, welcome back, everybody. We're honored to be here with Dan Ariely, the James B. Duke Professor of Psychology and Behavioral Economics at Duke University and New York Times bestselling author of three fantastic books that we highly recommend. And, Dan, will definitely uh, link to all your books on our show notes and your website and where people can find you. But I wanted to ask you, in your first book, Predictably Irrational, you talked about a study – about giving people placebos, people with migraines, I think it was. and depending on the price that you told them the, the pill cost, it, it uh, at higher prices it relieved more pain. And yet, in all cases it was just a placebo. And could you could you kind of explain that study and what you conclude from that? Yeah.
4: So so first of all, let me tell you a little bit about placebo. So, so as you well know, I was uh, in, in hospital for a very long time. I was a, a burn patient. I got burned in about 70% of my body. And we had, when I was in hospital, we had like a budget of how much painkillers the doctor would, would give us. So we had this allotment, you know, six times in 24 hours, we could take this injection and, um, you know, I would count how many I have and try to calculate, is this too early? Can I take the next one and so on. And I not only looked at my own dosage, I look at other people's dosages to make sure that I'm getting, you know, the right the right fair share. And sometimes at night there will be somebody else who was screaming from pain and the nurse would go and give them painkiller and they would, you know, go to sleep quietly. And I would call the nurse and I say, you know, I think this person is getting too much. They got more than their dosage. I want extra too. And sometimes the nurse said this was just placebo. It was just saline water with, with, with nothing in it. And this was this was kind of um, incredible because the idea that somebody has so much pain, something that I uh, can empathize with, and nevertheless they get this injection and they go to sleep, is just, it's just amazing. And I became interested in placebo. And placebos are really very... Very interesting. So here is a way to think about placebo. You remember Pavlov and his dogs, right? So what happened to Pavlov and the dog is there was meat salivation. Actually, they put a bell, meat salivation, bell, meat salivation. And at some point, the salivation became a reaction to the bell. You didn't need the meat anymore. So that was was a very interesting thing, right? It basically says that the body is trying to prepare itself to the future and changing its physiology for that. So you are the dog and you hear a bell and you say, oh, food is coming, let me prepare for that. Now pain works in similar ways. You have a substance in your brain that is very similar to morphine. Now interestingly, you can't close your eyes and say, please, 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 can I get this morphine? But when a doctor injects you, if you anticipate pain relief, your body starts secreting pain relief in anticipation of this happening. So what happens is when the doctor injects you with something, even if the injection has nothing, you are nevertheless getting something, but the thing you're getting is coming from your in, within your, within your body. Now that's kind of an amazing thing, right? It kind of gives you a different sense of the question of mind and body. It gives you a different sense of how expectation can change reality. So the way way we tried to do it in the study you you described is we basically told people the particular painkiller was either more expensive or less expensive. And the idea was that that will change people's expectations. And the question is, with those change in expectation, will it actually change the efficacy of pain? So we gave people this something we told them is expensive or cheap, we gave them electrical shocks and we measured their ability to tolerate these electrical shocks and what we found was that when people thought that the painkiller was more expensive, their body prepared to it in a better way and they were actually able to resist, to, to withstand the higher level of, of pain. Later on, we expanded it to all kinds of other experiences. So, for example, we we showed that when people have sunglasses that they believe are from a better quality manufacturer, uh, they can uh, better read through them through a very bright uh, sunlight. And we, We've shown that if you get golf equipment that you think is authentic rather than fake, uh, counterfeit, and people actually perform, perform better on the golf course. So lots of things happen that change with how our beliefs and the strength of our beliefs can actually change uh, what, what we experience. And the implications are very real. So think about medicine. And we get companies to spend tremendous amounts of money on medicine, and the insurance is paying a lot of money for the medicine, but we as consumers, we get these ugly brown bottles, and not only that, they obfuscate the name of the brand. So we don't know how much it really costs, and we don't get any brand benefit. just a shame. You know, so much of placebo is to create this great belief in something. Why don't we, why don't we take advantage of this? That's, that's just a shame.
3: Dan, this is Ed here. My, my dad was a Latin teacher, and I remember talking about placebo coming from the Latin for I shall please, right? So, yeah, pr- exactly. pretty, pretty, pretty interesting background on that. And I just want to pick up on yeah, this medicine but, thing. But I'm wait, not,
4: wait, historically, yeah. historically uh, placebo were, these were people who would come to funerals and basically change the mood of the funeral. Right, yes,
3: yes. Professional mourners to help people feel better. (laughs) Right. Yeah, you know I want to pick up on that, and I'm I'm holding in my hand a, a book that is not very familiar with a lot of people. is from Edwin Friedman, who is uh, uh, wrote a book, great book called "The Failure of Nerd." He's no longer with us; is deceased. But one of the things that he points out in his book, and I wonder if you have studied this as well, is that the the questions that are asked on the intake form at a hospital can also potentially have an influence on on healing. So, for example, he suggests that we we off, we we ask on the intake form not just about you know what your insurance Insurance company is and all that, but you know how long do you think it will get well? How will it will take you to get well? Mm-hmm. How how long do you tend to deal? How have how have you, how have you dealt with crises like this in in, in the past? Who's going to help you with healing in the future? That these might actually also influence the, uh, a patient getting well. Have you done any work on those intake questions?
4: We we have not, uh, but I would say that in general, if you think about the question of expectation setting, that's very much within the line. I mean you want to think more broadly about this. Um, incredibly important. Yeah. Right. I just want to make setting a connection. Setting up your beliefs. Yeah. Yeah, I just want to make yeah, a very, connection very, very, for you.
3: I'm not sure if you uh, are aware. My last name is Ed Kless. You may know my brother, who also works for Duke. He's not a professor. He works in the in he's a, in charge of the theaters. I think he's met you a couple times, getting you set up for for uh, so for some technical work. So <laughs> I'll, I'll be sure to have him say hello to you. <laughs> um, please do. The other thing that I wanted to, to ask you about is your, your your TED Talk, which must have been given just before you went for Duke, because I think you were still talking about MIT at the time, where you give this example of the Economist magazine and the, the, the fact that the people were offered three choices. And then you make an interesting point when you point out that, hey, people, when they were only given the two choices, tended to predict – Pick just the cheaper one, and you said that the the choice in the middle, which which wasn't useful uh, because nobody wanted it, wasn't completely useful in the sense that it helped people pick what they really wanted. And the way you phrase that is, has always been in, interesting to me because you didn't say that that changing prices like that would be about manipulation. It's really helping people make a better choice. Is that is that how you see it?
4: Well, you could do you could do both, of course, right? And that's kind of the issue with uh, information in general. But um, you know, let's let's think about something extreme like um, the, the new Apple watches. And let's let's think for a second about what is the role of the ten thousand dollar gold watch? And and you could say, you know, this is a ridiculous thing for people who have way too much money and want to flash it around. And you know, we think it's this. On the other hand, you could say this is a manipulation that gets people to uh, spend way too much money because they said, well, next to the $10,000 watch, the $400 one looks like a great, a great deal. <clears throat> now, you could, you could say, you know, this is information. This is basically telling people that this watch is so amazing. I'm not sure it is amazing, right? but uh, let's say it is, um, that, that some people are willing to pay so much for it. Right, And the problem with valuation is that we have a very hard time evaluating things in a vacuum. Right, What is, what is a watch like this worth? The, the kind of computation you would have to do is you would have to say, let me think about how many moments of joy will I get and how much joy is worth and how will it change my interactions with people and what that is worth and how will it change my ability to track my health and will I actually change my behavior in any way and maybe exercise a bit more and how much is that, is that worth? That's an incredibly complex computation. I don't think it's a computation that anybody that anybody does. So, so now you have to think, okay, if, if there was a technology that could do all of those things, it would be really incredible and worthwhile a lot. But if people don't understand that, maybe we need to work extra hard to explain this to them and some kind of relative evaluations are actually very, very helpful. Now, of course, as you said, um, you know, it's possible to, do, to use this information in a good way, and it's possible to do it in a manipulative, terrible way.
3: And let me pick up on that for just a 2nd curious because Ron, Ron and I, as he mentioned earlier, some of the Austrian economists, we, we believe in the, the subjective theory of value. Do, do you think that value is subjective or can it be actually objectively measured?
4: So, so I think there's lots of objective. L- let's say the following. I don't think it will ever be perfectly objective, but I think we can get to a much better <laughs> evaluation uh, than we're doing right now. So, so part of the thing with uh, money, let's say, is that every time you're getting something, you're not giving getting something else. So, in extreme case, if I gave you twenty dollars to spend a day, and I said that's what you have to do, now you have to think whether it's better to get a cup of coffee or it's better to get an apple or two apples, right? And and you have to you have to think about this um, very clearly. And you know, now the question is, which one of those have a higher Higher value, and if you say, "Well, you know, nothing has a value. I don't know what it is." You really, it's really not true because you have to make these trade-offs. The question is, can you make those trade-offs easier to do in the right way? So, I agree with you that if we leave people to their own accord, it's very hard for people to say, "Let me let me compare the value of getting a new car to the value of being more comfortable at retirement." Right? It's a really hard computation to make. But I think the technology can actually help us do those things much better. So so I'm hopeful that we can get um, the computation of value to be easier. It will never be completely objective and it will never be completely rational, but it will be easier. And I think with that, people would make better decisions.
3: Excellent. Thanks. Well, we are up against our second break at the bottom of the hour here, and we're going to be hearing from our friends Azamba. But before we hear that, want to let you guys know that you certainly can follow up with us after the show at verisage.com slash TSOE, and we will be posting the notes from today's broadcast with Dan Ariely. So glad that he's on. But now let's hear from our friends at Peter Wolf and Azamba.
2: Making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go. On iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple
3: iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
2: What if you could close more business with less effort and do it faster? What could your people accomplish if they had their own personal assistant keeping track of meetings and reminding them of follow-ups? What would it mean to have a perfect view of what your team and your prospects and your customers are doing? What if you could run your business from anywhere? You can have it all. Visit www.azamba.com forward slash soul today to find out how. That's azamba, A-Z-A-M-B-A dot com forward slash
1: soul Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
0: You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to the soul of enterprise.
3: Well, hi, everyone. We are back with Dan Ariely, and just want to remind everyone that we would love for you to write us a review at iTunes, so make sure that you get out to iTunes. We have a couple of new reviews in there, and thank you so much for doing that. That is a huge benefit to us, and if you believe in what we're doing here on the Soul of Enterprise, one of the best things that you can do for us is to go out and and post a review uh, on on iTunes. Uh, Dan, I want to ask you about a video that uh, hit, I think it's about three weeks ago, the end of April. And it was by an organization called Smarter Every Day. And the the video clip runs about eight minutes, is a, a, a guy who had the opportunity to ride a backwards bicycle. And here's what he means by backwards. He, he had a friend who was a welder who played a joke on him and took his bicycle and put a, 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 or I guess it's a, a, a gear in the front so that when you turn the steering wheel right – it, the, the front wheel went left. <laughs> when you turn the steering wheel left, the front wheel went right. And it, it just it kind of as a joke. And he, he tried to ride this bicycle and obviously he couldn't because the you know, calculation in your, in your brain, the, the, the brain patterns that are formed uh, are incredibly complex, right? There's the, you know, the, the thrust, the balance, the, the, the left-right uh, conversation going on there. And it, it took him eight months of trying to learn how to ride this bicycle, to reprogram his brain so that he, he could then ride this bicycle. He did this for five minutes a day. And finally, after eight months, he was able to ride it. Now, here's the, the real interesting thing is that – well, a couple things. First, he also had his son do it, and his son learned in about two weeks. Right. So it took uh-huh. the older person who was eight months, <laughs> the younger person who was just two weeks to be able to learn how to ride this bicycle where, where the right left thing was, was shattered. But then he goes to, uh, I think it was New Am- uh, to um, Amsterdam, and he does this tweet up meet up with somebody. And he's challenged can he ride a regular bicycle? Uh-huh. And he can't ride the regular bicycle anymore. It takes him, I think, uh, 20 or 30 minutes to be able to ride the, the regular bicycle again. And just, well, it was just, a, I think, a great example of how these behavioral patterns get stuck in our head and our, our programming, and it becomes very, very difficult, even if we want to change, to be able to change and adjust. So I uh, just wanted to get your reaction to that. Do you think that that's a, that's an interesting
4: idea, right? Yeah, absolutely. So this is really about um, training something, and it's becoming a habit and how difficult it is to override a habit. And it shows you both how, e- how, how strong habits are, uh, how difficult they are to create and how difficult they are to over, overcome. So, and there's a lot of effects like that. And some of it is truly amazing because you think about riding a bicycle, you're basically uh, realizing that Something that you had to pay lots of attention to, all of a sudden, you don't need to pay any attention to. You can ride a bike and not really think about this, where in the beginning, it was really hard and you had to think about it. The downside is that your body has been trained so specifically on that particular sequence that now doing anything else is going to be very, very hard. So it's both about habit creation and habit, you know, overcoming habits, and you know, I think bicycle is, is one of those very, very physical habits. that We don't really understand how riding a bicycle works, so there's this intricate feedback loop that we need to just kind of experience and understand and strengthen. But the same lessons can apply to other things we do in life. You can talk about eating, you can talk about driving, you can talk about our relationship with other people. All of those have these uh, aspects that we've created a particular pattern. We don't think about it anymore, and then if the world changes and we need to change things, it's very, very hard for us.
2: Right. Well, Dan, we'll get that link to you, and you can take a look at that video. I think you'll find it Yeah, fascinating. looking forward to it. I'm
4: not sure. I w- I'm looking forward to trying to write one of those.
2: <laughs> no, you know, one of the points. Sounds, he- sounds
4: the right one
2: you know, you sit there when you first watch it and you see the bike and you say, well, I could do that intellectually. And then, of course, one of his points is knowledge doesn't equate to understanding. So you don't realize how hard it is until you get on it. Um, In your book, the 2010 book, The Upside of Irrationality, which I I loved all your books, but um, this one, you had uh, just a real interesting thing. I thought you said, what if your alarm clock, Emailed your coworkers when you hit snooze, and I thought that would be a, a great way to apply social pressure to get you to you know get your butt out of bed earlier. But one of the points you make about uh, in that book is this concept of hedonic adaption, that we humans adapt mm-hmm. more quickly than we think. And you give the example of paraplegics and lottery winners. Can you expand on that? Yeah. So
4: so adaptation. Um, It's a little bit like uh, like habits in, in that sense, is our ability to get used to things. And it's a huge part of the human experience in a very general way. So imagine you go to a dark room in the beginning, not terribly dark, but, you know, darker. It takes you a couple of minutes to get used to it, and then you get used to it, and you don't think of it as darker anymore. You put clothes on yourself, you feel them for a few minutes, and you forget that they exist. So adaptation is about the fact that our body reacts to changes, not to fixed things, and we very quickly forget about the fixed things. And this is also what drives enjoyment. So, you know, you say to yourself, oh, my goodness, if I only get a newer car, I'll be really happy. And then you get a new car, and you're really happy until you get used to it. Um, So um, what happens is that we adjust and adapt to things much quicker than we, than we think. This is called the hedonic treadmill. And because of that, we keep on um, searching for more and more changes because every time we have a change, we say, oh, we're happy. Last time I bought a new car, I became happier. Now it's gone. Let me, let me buy something else new because that will make me happy and that, of course, will go away as well, but we don't think about it. So, so that's the issue with adaptation. Uh, by the way, adaptation is also good. It's not just bad. Right? So as somebody who got uh, badly injured, I can say, you know, um, I, when I got injured, I thought life would be terrible. But I got used to lots of things. I don't pay as much attention to the things I can't do anymore. I don't pay attention to some of the pain anymore. Lots of things, lots of things like that I just don't, uh, don't react to anymore, and it's a really good thing. So it, it's both good and bad.
2: Just yeah, that reminds me, Dan. On your injury, I think you wrote about it in one of the books where you talked about the nurse taking your bandages off and how she did it very fast, and that inflicted a lot of pain on you. And you thought it would be better if she did it slow, but then that would that would yeah. make her in, in more agony to see you suffer so much. Right.
4: And um, this this by the way, this was a, a very important point in my life where I basically. Um, Realized that the nurses thought that they um, they thought they were doing what's really best for me, uh, but in fact they were not. They thought that you know ripping the bandages off was the way to minimize the pain of the patient, uh, but it wasn't the way to minimize. It was the way to maximize the patient's. And he was a person who was you know dedicating their lives to help patients, getting paid badly, long hours, very difficult tasks, and they were trying to do things in a good way, but they were failing all the time because they had the wrong intuition about what helps and what hurts, and I think we go about life in the wrong way in all kinds of ways when we have a feeling about what's going to work, but our feelings are not correct, and because of that, we are... um, giving worse experiences to our customers, to our partners, kids, employers, employees, and so on.
2: Right. You know, another thing that you talk about a lot in the second book, The Upside of Irrationality, is you say the market for single people is the most egregious market failure in Western society. (laughs) And then you talk a lot about Internet dating and and you know how people kind of fudge their resumes and their looks and their height and their weight. <laughs> can you get, Can you shed a little light on internet dating and, and how that's affected the uh, the, the market failure? Uh,
4: yeah. So, so, so you know, here's what happened in the online dating is that in everything else we've moved to centralized markets, uh, the stock market, supermarkets are you know one place to do all your shopping. In dating markets, we used to have a central market. We used to have a Yenta or a matchmaker, and we moved away from this, and we say everybody could do their own, <clears throat> their own matchmaking. Everybody should do it by themselves because we, it should be driven by love, and everybody has the capacity to find whoever they love the most. The problem is it's really hard. So, so imagine you had to figure out who is the best person for you. What, what would be a good procedure? Maybe you would start with interviewing a 1,000 people, Maybe you would, you know, windle it down to a hundred, maybe you would date a hundred people seriously for six weeks and see how it works. Maybe you'll get the ten best one, maybe you'll date them for two years each to figure out who is I mean, it's just impossible, right? We just don't have the time to 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 do this job correctly. And you know, we just start with a thousand, which of course we could start with many more. So so we move from a, from a market mechanism to an individual mechanism in a very inefficient way and one of the best solutions we came up with is online dating. But the problem with the online dating is that the information uh, that we work on is information that is easy for computers to process but not to people. So imagine the following experiment. We went to a group of people and we say, give us a list of your good friends, let's say 25 of them, and a list of 25 people you like, okay, so so. Um, and then give us their names. Okay, now we have the names. We go to these people and we say, please fill all the information that will be in an online dating site about you without your name and without the picture. And then we go to the people that we started with and we said, hey, we have 50 profiles here. 25 of people you said you really loved, 25 of the people you said you love, okay, so so. Please sort them into two. Piles, the one you think you said you loved and the one you think you don't. And, and people are basically random at that. And, and why? Because what makes somebody a lifelong friend of somebody you love deeply is not about the things that are in their online profile. What, what's in their online profile are things that are easy to measure and easy to search on, but they're not the essence of people. You know, when you go to a restaurant and describe you some food, I said, these are ripe tomatoes and they are sweet and tangy and, you know, all kinds of things like that. Imagine I just described you the chemical composition of the tomato, right? How, how much helpful would it be in, in picking up a person? Not at all. And that's what we've done to that market. We've done things to that market that basically emphasize the measurable attributes but not, don't help us capture what is the essence of a person. Um, so, and that, so that's the, that's the issue. Um, and, and here's an example of this. So, you know, in labor analysis, uh, what, what we do is we take somebody's attributes, you know, your education and height and weight and uh, hair color and all kinds of things, and we regress it onto your salary. So uh, and with this analysis, we can find out what are the things that give you higher salary. So we could say, oh, if you're a man compared to a woman, you get, you know, 20 cents more on the dollar and if you are tall you get a little bit more and you can find all kinds of We did a similar analysis on online dating. We said, what makes people successful in online dating? Let's take all of their attributes. And one of the things we found was that for men, height is incredibly important. So, um, I'm 5'9". And how, how much do you think I will need to make more a year To be as attractive, of as somebody who is five ten, so how much more money would I have to make a year to be as attractive as somebody who is five ten? What's your estimate? Ten
2: thousand.
4: So it's forty. Wow! Right now you could say, are women really this superficial? That you know, an inch of height is worth forty thousand dollars a year, kind of almost a median income. That's crazy. Well, what happened is that the search engine allow you to search height of men. So, because the search engine allow to to search for that, women put numbers down. But they put five ten or five eleven or whatever they want, and they don't see men that are shorter than that. So, what happened is, of course, women care about height, but the fact that they can search based on that emphasizes the importance of that. And because of that, we get a terrible feedback where all kinds of attributes that in general will be okay important but not so important are increased in their importance because they're easy to search on. And so, so we take a market that doesn't work that well and we assume that the way people consume each other is by you know, knowing their height and weight and stuff like that. And we mess it up even more and it's really really sad
2: right well you point out that humans aren't algorithms and I, I think that's a really important point but Dan we need to take our last break here and folks in the meantime I'd like to remind you that you can contact Ed or myself at TSOE at barrisage.com and like us on facebook.com/ ask TSOE and now we want to hear from Ed's employer Sage)
1: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: Four new employees, a 20% increase in revenue. Being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S. These are your proudest numbers, your landmarks of growth and success. Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit believeinyournumbers.com today.
1: Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the foreword to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its foreword. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the foreword and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network.
0: You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V E R A S A G E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise.
3: And here we are back on The Soul of Enterprise with Dan Ariely. And we've got just a few more minutes with him. And I want to, first of all, thank you, Dan. I'm, I'm going to ask you one more question and, and get out and let Ron finish up with you. But thank you so much for being a guest. We really appreciate it. Your work is absolutely fascinating. And, and keep it coming. I've, I've read your books as well. And I'm also a, a, a subscribed to your a, a column advice on RSS. And I, I can't wait for it to read it when it comes out. So thanks again. Thank you. Uh, yeah. My, my last question for you is – now that you have studied this stuff, do you think it makes you more or less susceptible to the things that are going on, to, these, to, to the, you know, the, the anchoring effect, the framing effect, or are you just as susceptible as the rest of us?
4: Yeah. So, so I think on average I'm less susceptible, but what's interesting is it depends on the category. So look, there are a lot of decisions we make mindlessly buying coffee, you know, buying the middle one, or going to get your car insurance, and then all of a sudden the person says, hey, would you like to buy the liability insurance? And, you know, there's lots of things that are driven by emotions, that are driven by the spur of the moment, and those things are not things that are easy to stop and think about. And there I fail just like everybody else. I think that on big decisions, decisions that we all focus and think about, I have a little bit of extra tools to say, okay, here's a trap. Let me not fall into that. So let me think a bit more carefully about those things. Um, But the other category to think about is habits. And we mentioned habits before. And what I do is I actually think very carefully about habits because you realize that when you set up a habit, if it's a good habit, it's going to help you for a long time. And if it's a bad habit, it's going to wreak havoc on your life for a very long time. So, So I try to examine my life. From time to time, not all the time. That's way too much work. Uh, in terms of what habits I have, and then I try to cut them, to cut them off. And I'll give you one one example. Um, just like most people, I'm a little overweight. Um, I travel a lot. Food when you travel is really hard to eat well. You know, you get very late to a hotel, and you know, of course they have some, you know, dried lettuce as a as an option for a salad, but they also have a burger and you know things are, and um, a bit more tempting. Um, and, and, you know, I fail for temptation just like everybody else. So I made a rule, and the rule I picked was very simple, and the rule is I don't eat bread. Now, I'm not gluten intolerant and intolerant and all of those things, but it basically cuts 200 calories away from each meal. And it doesn't seem like a lot, but you know what? It is a lot. It is a lot, especially if you think about it over a long time. And, and I don't make compromises on this rule because if it's a rule, you say, this is what I do. And, you know, usually dieting is should I stop now? Should I take another bite, another fork full, When should I stop? The bread rule gives me really a very simple rule to follow. I follow it and it has is, it is worked very well for me. So, so I think those are the things where I basically can create better tricks to trick myself that are very effective.
2: Mm, so the rule becomes the habit after a period of time. That's right, yeah. Dan, your last book, which is just – I teach an ethics course. I think I told you this when we met in Reno, and we use some of your studies, The uh, your third book, The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, How We Lie to Everyone, Especially Ourselves. You talk about the fudge factor theory that we can cheat up to a point where we can still feel good about ourselves. And you also talked about uh, consulting with the IRS about – the, the way to increase voluntary compliance or or reduce the fudge factor is to have people sign their tax return before they fill it out. And the IRS gave you some mm-hmm. bizarre excuse that that would be illegal uh, and, and it's too complicated. And I think you said something like, have you seen your tax forms recently? <laughs> but can, can you yeah. talk about that? Would that actually reduce people's cheating if they had to sign the tax return first?
4: Yeah, so we haven't done it with the tax uh, returns, but I think the answer is absolutely yes. Uh, We've done this with insurance companies, and we found out that uh, when people sign a form before uh, for an insurance claim, they do become more honest. You know, what happened is that in general we want to be honest. We just need to remind ourselves that we want to be honest. And signing a, an honesty pledge or reminder and so on is a great tool to remind ourselves who we really want to be.
2: Right. You found that with the insurance company with the odometer uh, mileage reporting, huh? When you, yep. when you had them sign it first, the, the reporting went up by 15%, if I remember right.
4: That's exactly right, yeah. And, and I think there are other opportunities for that, right? So the, you could say, oh, it's about your signature, but it's not just about signature. It's about top of mind. So think about what kind of person you want to be and what kind of person you are in each moment. And there's lots of gaps. There's gaps in eating and texting. And, you know, you, just the gaps between who you want to be and who you are. It, you know, sometimes there are gaps. And the question is, what does it do to you if you pause on those moments and think to yourself about who you really want to be, and would you actually become, you know, close to the person you want to be?
2: Right, right. Well, Dan, this has just flown by, and I've got to ask you, uh, just because we are such big fans, are you working on a new book?
4: Yeah, so actually I'll have a new book out on May 18th. Oh, wow. It's a book based on my, on my columns. Uh, So it's a book in which I teamed up with a cartoonist from the New Yorker and I wrote, kind of, I expanded on my answers in the Wall Street Journal and he wrote some cartoons about it and I think it's kind of fun. And we also, on May 22nd, we're going to have a movie out on dishonesty. So I teamed up with the producer and and we basically talked to lots of big cheaters, uh, people who've committed, you know, real crimes and try to understand how is the lab experiments we have Uh, relate to those larger more complex acts and quite related so it's a movie about their stories and the research and how they fit together
2: excellent well thank you so much dan we gotta we gotta jump here but uh, again thank you so much for being here we look forward to your book and hopefully you'll come back and and discuss it after it's been out thank you so much for joining us my pleasure Um, Take care. Thank you. Bye. And Ed, uh, what do we have on board next week? Another fascinating topic, Ron. We're going to talk about public choice theory. Excellent. I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the soul of enterprise business in the knowledge economy sponsored by Sage, supporting small and medium sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, folks, please visit us at verisage.com TSOE. We'll post show notes up on all of Dan's books and uh, join us next week for Public Choice Theory. Thanks for uh, listening today and we'll see you next week.